We are specimen animals in a zoo, and they have taken every precaution to prevent our escape. To them, we are caged for life. Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. For some reason, the Simon and Garfunkel song At the Zoo has been going through my head. I can't figure out why. A zoo. That seems to go way, way back to the earliest days of Star Trek, doesn't it? It really does. Yes, it does. Uh, Looks like the animated series is coming full circle in some ways on the eye of the beholder. Not to be confused with the greatest Twilight Zone episode of all time. Yes. Not to be confused with a seventh season episode of The Next Generation, which has a completely different plot line. But this is The Eye of the Beholder for Star Trek, the animated series. Another in a series of episodes, Steve, that not seen in a long time. I had a vivid memory of like a uh, a snail-like, slug-like alien creature that captures our heroes and then rewatch the episode. But what did you think of the eye of the beholder? So uh, what I'll say is, uh, again, it's 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 very solidly in where the animated series I feel like has been for the last several episodes, which is it's good. You know, it's a, it's a good story. It has an interesting beginning, middle, and end. It makes sense. It doesn't have some of the egregious logic errors that obviously bug me. And it also had some moments where it really made me think and even feel about an idea that I thought was kind of powerful. So I, I, I did like it. I liked it. I liked it quite a bit, I think. Yeah, I, I liked it. I feel like it got better as it went along. Yeah. Because yes, I, like, I agree. Yeah. Like the first, uh, I would say third of the episode felt like, well, I guess you could call it filler. I just was like, you know, what's the, what's the story even going on here? Uh, did they not have as much of a story? But ultimately I did like it. I don't think I liked it as much as like, let's say, the time trap or the slaver weapon or yesteryear certainly, but I think it is definitely better than I remember it being. There's a lot of good stuff here. I feel like it could have been better. I feel like, and we'll get into this more when we get to these points. I feel like some of the great Star Trek trademarks in terms of increasing the stakes as the episode goes along, making things more dire, making things more of a race against time could have been utilized in this episode, but instead it wasn't because the writer of the episode, David P. Harmon, he was asked to do an animated series episode by his friend Dorothy Fontana, Mm -hmm. and he did it as a favor and didn't really do much beyond that in terms of like, you know, really getting into it like he did with not one, but two episodes of the original series that he wrote, one of them being The Deadly Years, which mm. is an excellent episode and definitely one of my favorite conversations as far as uh, you know, you and me on Enterprise Incidents. I thought that was a great conversation that made me love that episode more. But he also, Steve, he co-wrote A Piece of the Action with Gene Kuhn. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's a great episode. But in terms of this one, uh, it uh, it's the only animated series episode he wrote, and his final draft was submitted on October 24th, 1973. The Eye of the Beholder, just like every other first season animated episode, is directed by Hal Sutherland. The production number is 22016, which made it the 16th animated series episode to go into production. 
It aired on January 5th, 1974, the first Star Trek episode to air in 1974, and it's the 94th Star Trek episode of them all to be broadcast. And, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of, of, you know, what I've loved about the original series in terms of communication, in terms of not being afraid of something that looks really different, maybe even off-putting to the eye. You know, I mean, that's right there in the title, but, uh, it, I think it's a good, but not great episode, but I still, I still really enjoyed it. Um, so as you said, we're into 1974, just to finish off 1973, as you remember, we're in the midst of an energy crisis and this, I found this really cool, which is that, and, and I don't usually say I found this really cool before I describe something that Richard Nixon did, (laughs) but that's what I'm about to do because he is the only U S president to fly while president on a commercial airliner. And he did it to demonstrate to the world, hey, I'm not going to waste all this energy using Air Force One. We're in the middle of an energy crisis. So he flew first class, and then he went and walked through the entire plane and said hello to every single person on the plane and shook their hands. I thought that was- the airline? Do you know? I don't have the airline. I don't have it listed. I'm sorry. Uh Uh, (laughs) uh, On December 26th, the day after Christmas- Scott, we're in your realm. I'm not ex- I'm not saying you have to know this, but a very important movie premiered on December 26, 1973, and I will just say when the commercial came on TV, I hid behind the couch. It scared me so much. Oh, wait a minute. 1973, December 1973. They Oh, wait a minute. Uh could it be The Exorcist? You got it, sir. It is The Exorcist. Wow. I was so terrified by that commercial. I mean, I'm five years old. The commercial came on TV, and I was like, I was out. I didn't see that movie until I was almost 30. I was so frightened of it. You didn't um, see The Exorcist till you were 30? Yeah. Holy I, I mean, I've never liked horror movies because they scare me. And I have no <laughs> desire. And The Exorcist was one, like, I was I was already pre-scared. Uh, and that movie's so good. It, that it, movie's it, great. Absolutely. Still great one of the scariest yeah. movies ever made. I agree with you. I saw that on TV sometime i guess in the early 80s and uh when linda blair turns her head all the way around oh my god that just obviously left an impression because it's still terrifying what's interesting we did it for the cinephiles and the i read the book the book is also terrifying Mm. what was interesting for me watching it when we did it for the podcast was it's actually the first half of the movie that i find most disturbing all the medical stuff before we get into the full exorcism stuff it's that sort of, uh, maybe because I'm a parent, but the parent, something's going on with my kid. I don't know what it is. All these terrible things are happening and totally out of control. Super, super upsetting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's, I agree. It still holds up too. Yeah. On December 28th, a, a incredibly important book was published. This was Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which was, I don't know if you know about him, but he was a prisoner in the gulags in the Soviet Union for decades and wrote this novel, which had to be smuggled out of the Soviet Union into France. And this is really cited as one of the things that brought down the Soviet Union, you know, outside of the Cold War. But this was the real exposure of what the Soviet Union was all about. It's an incredibly powerful book. Um, Here, you know what? I said I rarely say this is really cool in connection to Richard Nixon, but here's two in a row, which is that Richard Nixon who hated environmentalists, he hated the hippies, he hated that whole movement, 
is probably one of our most important environmental presidents. And it was on, on December 28th that he signed the Endangered Species Act. He's also founded the EPA. I mean, you know, Nixon did a lot for the environment. There was stuff there. Yeah. yeah. 74 is not a good year for Nixon. <laughs> no. On uh, January 2nd of 74, on the uh, the 48th day of Spaceflight for Skylab, they hold a TV news conference. And then, again, it was all about Nixon. This is the week of Nixon. Nixon <laughs> lowers the speed limit to 55 miles an hour throughout the country to save on gas. And then on January 4th, this is not being cool, Richard Nixon, but he refuses to release 500 tapes that are subpoenaed by the Senate Watergate Committee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a cancer on the presidency and it is growing. Would you like to get into the episode? Let's get into the eye of the beholder. <laughs> well, let's start with the star date, Scott. What is the star date here? The star date here, and we hear, we hear William Shatner is back after missing out on the slaver weapon. The star date 5501.2. So like a great many of the animated series episodes we've covered on Enterprise Incidents, that puts the Eye of the Beholder taking place in between the live-action TOS episodes for The World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky and Is There in Truth No Beauty? Interesting, interesting. Um, and what we hear is basically there was some science team that was looking at this planet, Some they beamed down and then lost track of the landing party and then the captain of the ship says, well, we're all going to beam down. And, which, and we're kind of going over this inf information in the briefing room. And Kirk has a reaction to this that I find totally bizarre. It was against all orders. The need was apparently desperate. The captain of a ship, no matter his rank, must follow the book. And I'm like, he's clearly not applying to himself. <laughs> Come on. If he, are, are, you, are you, I mean, talk about hypocrite. I mean, like seriously, Jim, you know? <laughs> But doesn't doesn't Spock's response kind of say like a capability, I'm afraid, out of the reach of most humans. <laughs> Do you think that's like a little passive aggressive poke from Spock? To absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You know, he's maybe, used to the passive aggressive after dealing with McCoy. And I think that he couldn't resist the, sh the chance to, to like lay one in on Captain Kirk. And, and what we hear is this planet's called Lectra 7. We don't have much information about it. We're scanning it to find out what kind of animals there are, but that's going to take too long, so we're going to beam down. And, of course, McCoy says, Jim, if the others are lost, why take the risk? Because they may not be dead. We have to find out. It's still a risk. That's why we're here, Bones. Okay. Of course I'm going to ask you, Steve. What does that make you think of? Uh, that maybe something about our business being risk? Risk is our business that's what the starship is all about that's why we're aboard her i love that line because of course any anyone with even like a passing familiarity with the original series is going to go oh that sounds really familiar risk is our business one of the great all-time great kirk speeches see and this is why it's kind of why i don't like it because the thing about that moment is it the risk is our business speech is they're about to do something totally insane you know I'm going to let some alien, I don't even know who it is, take over my body and what, who knows what's going to happen, right? It is a, it is a true risk thing. Here, they're beaming down to a planet, which they do all the time. You know, like it's, there isn't a sense of risk. It doesn't have any emotional resonance. The only resonance it has is to reference something else that we love, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. It's not, that's the stakes are definitely not as, not as yeah. high, like in the moment in uh, Return to Tomorrow, which is where that comes from. Yeah. 
So uh, we beam down to the planet and we're in the midst of like, we're like at Yellowstone because there's all this bubbling steam and all these pools of boiling water. Everyone all right? 10 yards the other way and we'd be boiled alive. Unusual that such a lake would exist under these planetary conditions. And then right as we're talking about that, there's some crazy water dragon that is coming after them. So uh, that dragon, like every other alien in this episode, of course, was designed by storyboard artist Bob Klein, who joined us that great conversation we had with him yeah. on the time trap. So when it came to his designs for the dragons and the dinosaur in this episode, that was inspired by Disney's Fantasia. And Bob Klein himself oh. said, I loved that level of simplicity, cartoonishness, and reality all mixed together, how powerful it was and how rarely I'd seen animation that was that powerful from a design standpoint. We got to have him back on the show. I was, I literally was going to say, are we going to have him back? I, cause I got to have him, him back. <laughs> um, so, uh, and they shoot at it and it goes under, and this is something we're going to kind of repeat a few times in act one in this episode, yeah. which is kind of why I agree with you that act one is like, I won't say it's moving along at a snail's pace, but it is, a, you know, maybe a little bit slow, maybe too, I, not too much going on. You know, when I, when I was, Watching it, I watched it twice because, you know, it's only 24 minutes. Why not? So when I first watched it, I was, you know, like, yeah, I was like, what, can we get cut to the chase already? What's what's taking so long? We don't have a lot of time as it is. This is where I thought, well, this is where the writer, David P. Harmon, could have, like, added more stakes, more more of a backstory. Because, you know, we've seen some episodes of the animated series where there's a whole lot going on, but it all fits perfectly and uh, it, they make it all into to 24 minutes with, with the credits. But when I was re-watching it to prepare for this, this, this discussion, I thought of, well, I guess you could say it's almost like when you go back and re-watch the Apple. Mm. The Apple, like, they're just going around Gamma Triangular 6 for a while and stepping on very volatile rock bombs and having lightning storms that are killing off the red shirts. And, you know, we really don't know what's going on until uh, for for like midpoint of the episode when we meet Thal. So that's when I went, OK, they're just establishing the stakes of like like what you pointed out. They're already sort of adding information that there's creatures here. There is a there's a, a big shift in like a desert to uh, a very nice area. And there is like species here that maybe it's weird that they're here. They're all here together. So, so they're all picking up on that, and Spock is already formulating his plans. Well, and there's also the thing that Kirk seems to know a little bit about these creatures they're encountering because he knows like where to shoot one of them, um, which which is a clue. I'll say, and this is, and again, maybe this is how we separate writing that is fine that works and good writing is that the thing that's happening in the apple. First of all, the the fear of the whole sequence is much much worse. Absolutely. The then we also have Spock sacrificing his life almost to save Kirk, and we also have Kirk's guilt is that he feels terrible that he should have seen the warning signs, and because he didn't see the warning signs, then a crew member is dead, and now they're in this terrible situation. And so that's like this has this is doing the job of setting up some stuff, but it doesn't have the emotional connection or resonance that a, a really good episode of the original series had. Completely agree, one hundred percent. Um, so, uh, we're continuing to move along. We run into another giant creature. Then we're, and one thing we should say is that they tried to contact this landing party and they got a signal that told them 
you know, maybe like a kilometer away, we can find them, but we didn't hear a, a voice. So we don't quite know, know what's going on with them. And the other thing is that we're moving from uh, ecosystem to ecosystem because we started in that Yellowstone, bubbly water, steamy area. Then we're in a desert and then we're in a pretty forest where they have kind of a cool shot where it's like the reflection shot in the pool of water that then yep. tilts up to them. It's, it's nice. It's a good choice. Uh, there's a moment that I just think is so dumb. I where know it is. I know it is. But what do you think it is? What the McCoy moment with the water? Oh is no! That... Go ahead. <laughs> you go. <laughs> okay. So there's a moment where they sit, look at this water and like it looks really, it looks too pure. And Spock goes, "Well, let me test it. It tastes just fine." And I'm like, "You drank the water? Like, <laughs> like before? Like, don't you? You mentioned the deadly years a minute ago. One thing you should know is you're on some weird planet. Don't drink the water. Right, like, right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is your? What was your odd McCoy moment? So, so, you know, like every time they came upon, uh, whether it's a monster or a dinosaur or flying pterodactyls that looked just like the uh, flying creatures, the swoopers from the infinite Mm, Yeah, yeah. they were because they just reused the animation. Um, the second beast that they encounter, uh, that they shoot under the neck and then it falls and it falls. Oh, yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just went, first of all, it's silly. Second of all, he should be crushed to death. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> well, and, and, well, and and if he wasn't crushed to death, then he would die of suffocation by the time they dig him out. I mean, like, yes. No, I totally agree. I'd skipped over it. It is totally, totally silly. And then <laughs> after these dragons, as you mentioned, that fly towards him, they seem to hit a force field. And then out of nowhere, some tentacles grab them. And we see that they are being held by some giant, very weird, and very pink uh, snails. Yeah, pink is a hell of a thing in the animated series, isn't it? You got the uniforms yeah. uh, from the Kazinti. You got the tribbles. Uh, I think the Klingon uniforms uh, from the Time Trap even had some pink in it. So, so a couple of things, you know, as we and now are at the end of Act One. So, you know, I've said this before, and yes, in some ways, I am definitely grading Eye of the Beholder on a curve because. You know, it completely lacks those emotional and serious beats like we're comparing to the Apple, a live action original series episode. It's, you know, Kirk's guilt over losing crewmen, um, the anguish. But when I was rewatching it a second time, I just thought hearing Kirk, Spock and McCoy talk and and try to figure stuff out. Those moments made me go. I love these guys. Yeah, I love even though it's animation and even though filmation, the production company, Star Trek was just part of a machine, part of this factory, and they were cutting corners to get the product out on a very limited budget. But in the end, I mean, you got William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, reading from a script written by an original series writer, produced by Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana. And I just, you know, closed my eyes for a moment and I went, ah, it's Star Trek. So yeah. there's that. <laughs> so there's a thing uh, I, it's, I'm trying to think of how to explain it that happens is that there are times where I've been filming someone and particularly if you're doing casting and frequently you almost you o- always tape casting sessions. Um, and, par- and part of the reason you tape them is that you can look at them later and compare the performances of the people that you, you saw. That's what's important. But the other reason you do it is there's some people that just pop when they're on camera. And I've literally had this experience where I'm watching an actor with my eyes play the scene. 
And then I look over at the little monitor on the camera and I look back with my eyes and back with the monitor and it's totally different because the camera just loves them and there's this magic that comes out. And yeah. so there's this thing you're looking for when you're auditioning someone, you're looking for the magic. And of course, you know, when Shatner auditioned, he's that kind of person. Oh, sure. Right? <laughs> but there's the next level is that when you're doing the audition process, have you heard the term the, a chemistry read? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you do is like you go, well, I really love this actor and I really love this actor. And you have maybe two people, two or three people up for playing Captain Kirk and two or three people up for Spock and two or three people up for McCoy. This never happened in Star Trek, of course, because of how this all this whole thing came about differently. But but as you go, you mix and match them and you want to see where the chemistry happens. And that sometimes you'll have someone who just totally popped in their audition. But then when they're reading with the other person, there's nothing there, which is probably uh, Leonard Nimoy and his name just went out and Captain uh, Jeffrey Hunter and Jeffrey Hunter, two really good actors. Yeah. But you put them together and there's nothing there. Then you put Shatner and Nimoy together and the magic is there. And if you give two people that have that magic, good material, we have the original series. And if you give those two people who have the magic adequate or barely adequate material, the magic is still there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, the material's not there, but they're so they have such chemistry that they just can't help but be interesting, even when the material's not so great. You you just made my point a hundred percent. Even though even though this is animation, and even though likely most likely the three of them were not in the same room at the same time yeah. when the dialogue was recorded, but also by this point, Shatner, Nimoy, and D. Kelly have the characters down pretty good. Yeah. Like man, when you talk about chemistry, and you know, when you get a show or a film where the chemistry is just off the hook, like it is between these three actors. Yeah. You just go, I don't care how mediocre the teleplay is. I just love these actors. I love these characters. And that, that does a lot to kind of smooth over the rougher edges of a, of a less than great episode. The One other thing I want to just, while we're talking about this is uh, I feel like for me, and you might have a different reaction. I feel like they go to the bickering between McCoy and 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 Spock. They go to that well too much. And and it's sort of like when in doubt, let's have them bicker a little bit. And the thing is is Nimoy and D Kelly are great at it, you know. So it's not like they're not delivering on it. It's just I there's like 3 of them or so in this episode. And I just tired of them. And 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 what it is is the difference between this and what you see in, which isn't a great episode, but has great moments of this in the immunity syndrome. And then, of course, in Bread and Circuses and All Our Yesterdays, when it's built on real meaningful character stuff, they're arguing is some of the greatest things ever in Star Trek. But in this episode, I was like, God, it must be irritating to be Jim Kirk and have to listen to this crap. Uh, All, yeah. It's like, shut up and be professionals, you know, particularly McCoy, like, stop, just yeah. stop, you know. Uh, first of all, I, I agree with you a thousand percent because you know this is an animated episode, less than half the length of an original episode, and you've got three moments between Spock and McCoy. One would have been enough. Yeah. Because, okay, then you just go, okay, yeah, that's a that's a trope of Star Trek. Not not a bad one, but still a trope. But three in one animated episode is a bit much. But what you just pointed out about the, the moment in the immunity syndrome with the uh, the shuttlecraft, like who's going to yeah. go? You know that moment in Bread and Circuses in the jail cell, uh, which is one of the best moments of the original series, quite frankly, because yeah. you can see that Spock basically not saying anything uh, to McCoy is like, yeah, you're right. 
even though he just doesn't say as much. But then the payoff of all that bickering when it explodes between Spock and McCoy and R yesterday is that's, I mean, look, I know we talked about that when we recorded that episode, but that's what makes R yesterday's such a powerful episode. And, and that moment is so earned because they've been bickering for three years. And that's also something that would have made our yesterday's the perfect way to close out the episode, uh, the, se- the series really, you know, instead of turnabout intruder. But in this case, I agree. And, you know, you know, Kirk has its moments where like in the original series, they're on the bridge and Spock and McCoy are bickering and Kirk goes, okay, gentlemen, that's enough. Like yeah. it's base seed. But in this one, it's, you're right. It's, it's one too many trips to the well. So, you know, I know we're on like a massive digression at the end of act one, but, but I, I'm actually finding this very interesting. And there's some, there's, it's brought up sort of another thing, which is that the point isn't when it's good that McCoy is a jerk. And the point isn't that Spock wants to get McCoy's goat. The point is that their conflicts come out of deep, different character things. They come out of internal struggle. They come out of Spock's internal struggles with his emotions. They come out of Bones's insecurity. They come out of both them being bothered by the things that the other one does or choices that they make. And they both also are out of care and love for the other one that they want to help them. And they come out of particularly with bread and circuses in particular, but with all of them of like their relationship to Jim and how they feel about him and how that, how their worry about Kirk manifests in them having conflict. It's all this other stuff. It's not just, I like to poke at you. That's not the point, you know? That is a great point, and I would say almost like an epiphany, Steve, because everything that you just said is absolutely what makes the bickering between Spock and McCoy tolerable, fun, funny, uh, you know, profound in some ways. But when it's done out of their love for Jim Kirk, like yeah. in, the, in the Tholian web or in the Paradise, exactly. Moment, when Kirk is missing, uh, you know, in Tholian Web, he's, you know, Spock declares him as dead. That the the increase in the bickering between them and the conflict between them is because it's at its best, it's done out of their their love and their care and respect for their friend, James Kirk. Right. Bingo. Man, I got to tell you, it took all of Enterprise incidents for, for me to realize what you said is so true. And I think it goes to, it's like what we were talking about in the first act of the Apple of like, it's the emotional content. It's not doing the thing. Doing the thing is that, you know, like it's doing the thing is a way to get to the emotional content of these characters that we love. And in the animated series, they're doing the thing. And it's like, yeah, that's a Star Trek thing. And we're in a Star Trek story and they are mostly behaving in character. And when they're pretty good, they make, you know, the episodes make sense, but the, there's been I mean, how much emotional content has there been in the animated series? Yesteryear, definitely. Yesteryear, for sure. Yesteryear, um, I would say, you know, if you look at like one of our planets is missing. Yeah, maybe know, a little there. A little there. Uh, I feel like there could have been some emotional uh, conflict in in uh, in Time Trap. I think that's trap. the only thing that's missing from that, because otherwise I, I think that's a great episode. But you're right. I mean, it, it and actually... The ambergris incident when Kirk is going, is that what you were about to say? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> when he's, I can't, I can't command the enterprise from inside an aquarium. That's, that's one of those moments. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, everything you're pointing out here in terms of like the lack of emotional, emotional connection uh, throughout most of the animated series 
is something that David P. Harmon felt was a big reason why he just basically wrote this episode as a favor for Dorothy Fontana. Mm. Because he is, his feeling was that, and I was going to say this at the end of the episode, is that he wasn't crazy about the Eye of the Beholder. He didn't really love the way it turned out. He thought it was okay, but ultimately he felt that that it was not possible for an animated series to capture the emotion that you were able to get much, much better in the original series. And I, I mean, I agree with them, but I feel like, like you pointed out, there are moments when the animated series did have that emotion. And maybe, maybe some of the writers just felt like, well, it's animation. I'm not going to try as hard, or maybe uh, it's animation. People don't really want that anyway. But as you pointed out those four times, it can happen. But that was something that really did bother David P. Harmon uh, about about animation. That's why he didn't put his heart into the writing of the teleplay. Okay, it's so funny. I know we've been on this digression forever, but I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And it, what's funny is, so as I think you know, I've been writing forever and have a long way to go, this book on directing. And the basic theme of the book is the difference between story and plot, which is a definition I got mostly from Stephen King and kind of you know advanced myself. But the basic idea is that plot is the mechanism of what's happening. Yeah, we've been captured by giant sails who have put us in a zoo. How are we going to get out? That's the plot. And story is the internal and interpersonal conflicts and the evolution of characters over time. And that and my contention in the book is for most movies, not all of them, but for most, it's actually the story, not the plot. It's the characters and the emotional journey. That's what's keeping you involved. Yeah. Not the mechanism of the plot. Um, there are movies that are totally the opposite that are full plot, but that's not the point. Anyway, that's, what's missing from the animated series, you know, is that it's, it's the character emotional story thing, which is why, which is why I doubt if someone said, Hey, I'm interested in star Trek, what should be the first episode you would pick for me to watch? You wouldn't pick an episode of the animated series. Correct. Oh, no, no way. Uh, not even for a moment. (laughs) We only like the animated series because we love the original series. Yes. No, I agree. I agree with yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I apologize <laughs> for the long digression. Um, but that's, you know, the, this, these are the conversations about Star Trek that excite me the most. Yep. We do come back in Act 2. They are being carried and apparently have been carried for a long time by these giant snails. And this is one where I go, this is where artists should p- push back on writers. Is I'm sure the David Harmon went, yeah, snails, snails. It'd be interesting. They're giant snails. And they look so stupid. Yeah, I think. And and this is where it's like, it's not a good visual idea. If you had it in a book where you don't see it, it would be okay. But in, in a, in a visual medium, the artist should have said, listen, can we do something other than snails? This is, it's not going to look good. It's going to look stupid and silly. And that's how it looks to me. Yeah. I I feel the same way. I I didn't really love the way the Lactrans looked. Uh, you know, the pink didn't help. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we come up on this city and they say, that must be five square kilometers. If these are the builders, it is an admirable feat. Five square kilometers. They didn't do the math. That is not a big thing at all. Do you know how big Los Angeles is? How big? 1,300 square kilometers. Five square kilometers. That's nothing. It's a couple of blocks. It's really not a big (laughs) space at all. Anyway, they bring them inside and they, they... and we talk about, are they communicating with us? And we start to figure out that, oh, they communicate telepathically. And then McCoy says, they're doing exactly what we would do. Which is? 
Well, if we came upon an alien creature we'd never seen before, the first thing we'd do is to make sure it was free of harmful bacteria. Then we'd see if it was intelligent. Unlike what we've been talking about with them bickering, Spock says, Congratulations, Doctor. A most logical assumption. See, this is where the second act is where the episode starts to find its, yeah. find its way. And Spock, throughout the course of this episode, is very much at the top of his game with providing scenarios, possibilities, because there are always possibilities, as Spock mm-hmm. said, uh, or will say. And this is a great example. Uh, you know, they're doing what what we would do. We would be yeah. making sure that they're cool. So, so this is where I, I start to really, okay, this episode actually works. Surely we can communicate with them some way. They appear to be as advanced beyond Earth civilization as you are from a colony of ants. And then they start talking about all these creatures that they saw in the different, I'll say, habitats. You mean it's some kind of a zoo? Exactly. All right. What am I going to ask you, Steve? You're going to ask me what episode this reminds me of. Yes, that's and right. I, and I'm going to say The Menagerie and the Cage. The Menagerie and the Cage. Absolutely. And that's what brings the eye of the beholder back to the very beginning of Star Trek. Because, of course, as we all know, if you were listening to Enterprise Incidents, you know that the cage was the pilot that was filmed that did not sell the series, but got got them to do another pilot, which is where we got Shatner and the rest is history. And uh, that footage aired during, most of it anyway, aired during the two-part episode, The Menagerie. But yes, absolutely, this is sort of an animated version of the cage where uh, the Lactrans are the Tolosians. And uh, uh, also, you're dealing with uh, uh, observing Starfleet officers in captivity. You're dealing with communication with uh, telepathy. And you are also seeing mental abilities used to deliver punishment. It is very much and the menagerie. And I don't know, you think David P. Harmon, who wrote two episodes of the original series, ever saw the menagerie? Yeah. (laughs) Probably. The thing that I don't think actually makes sense is this idea that the that the giant, our giant snails can't figure out if uh, the humans are intelligent. And it's like, look, they flew here in a big ship. They're flying through space. You know, it makes these super advanced, super intelligent Lactrans look less intelligent if they can't figure this out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do like the line. They took our phasers, communicators, and other equipment. So they must have some idea we're intelligent. Not necessarily, Captain. They could have taken them for the same reason you would take a sharp object away from a child. See, that's pretty pretty good writing right there. Yeah. No, I like I like the writing. I think the the stru- the setup isn't doesn't quite work. Right. And the Lactrans deliver our guys to like their new home, their new human habitat, a cool house, there's real grass, everything is built for them. The aliens are safe now. How's that? They are safe because we are now exhibits in a zoo. A zoo. I'm no animal. And this is the moment where I did feel, I felt something and felt this idea. On this planet, Bones, they seem to be the people and we are the animals. And I was like, this is a, this is an, this is a science fiction idea. This is the, well, to someone more advanced, aren't we just like the chimpanzees that we keep in a zoo? And it made me feel about what are the ethics of keeping a zoo and where, you know, where do we draw the line and is it about intelligence? And I, like I had a reaction to it. That was cool. Yeah. I thought it was cool too. And, you know, we've seen, we, we have seen races on the original series where the 
Starfleet Federation, uh, uh, the Enterprise crew members, are very inferior to some of the aliens they encountered, like the Organians. Right. Uh, you know, the, uh, what does that Spock say in the coda to that episode? Uh, uh, they're above us as we are above an amoeba. And then we also meet the landing party that beamed down from the science team. And we hear a little bit more about going on. We hear that one of their crew members, Lieutenant Randolph, is sick in the house. And so McCoy goes to help her. Have you tried an escape? A dozen different ways. Tunnels, a weakness in the force field, nothing worked. So, well, uh, these uh, crew members that we're seeing now from the USS Ariel, uh, the Ariel was a, char- Ariel was a character in uh, The Tempest from uh, Shakespeare. So that's probably where the name of that uh, ship of six, six crew members, so we uh, hear about one of them who's ill, but Lieutenant Commander Tom Markle is voiced by Steve. Jimmy Dewan. Uh, the character of uh, Randy Bryce, uh, the navigator, is voiced by? Majel Barrett. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we go to see the sick crew member and McCoy wants his equipment. And this is what we find out. It's like we find out. They bring them food every once in a while. And then there's also right outside their cage, basically, is a display case with all of their stuff. And so they go, okay, well, let's think about needing something. And some food appears. And they go, oh, well, maybe if we focus more on the medical kit, we could get the medical kit. And so they all concentrate. And now they get the medical kit. So we sort of established a way of kind of communicating. But let's see, communication, how many times have we seen the very best of the original series all come down to communication. I mean, of course, the gold standard is the Horda in The Devil in the Dark. And yes, you know I always like to bring up Metamorphosis, which is all about communication, written by the same person, Gene Kuhn, but also, uh, in a way, Arena, you know, like, wow, we were wrong, you know, because, you know, the communication wasn't established with the Gorn. Uh, And this is an episode like the best of the original series where – I mean, I mean, communication is everything in this episode. Absolutely. And, and the thing that they bring up is that like animals in a zoo, the zookeepers want to keep them alive. And Lieutenant Markle asks, uh, and I'm sure that you like this moment. Sir, do you think there's any chance of getting out? As long as we're alive, there's a chance. Of course. I love that moment because that is a quintessential James T. Kirk response. Yeah. Uh, and then Spock argues. He says, Begging your pardon, Captain. I think we should face the situation realistically. We are specimen animals in a zoo, and they have taken every precaution to prevent our escape. To them, we are caged for life. That's a that's a pretty uh, big thing for, to come from Spock, and that brings us to the end uh, of Act 2, and, you know, one thing that happens during the second act is when Spock is is trying to communicate with the Lactrans, and, and I'm going, wait a minute, like, like how telepathic can Spock be? But remember in the Omega Glory, when Spock was trying to communicate uh, with uh, one of the Yangs, yep. you know, McCoy looks at him and says, what are you doing? Uh, and Spock responds, I'm attempting to... Uh, place a suggestion so that's the telepathy that's uh going on here in this episode it's like oh well that was already established in the original series so i'm like okay i'm down with this and we're back in act three continuing to try to uh communicate and what and then mccoy it's always good writing when a character in the show 
brings up the thing that you've just been thinking about. Because I was thinking about what's Scotty doing this whole time? Mm. And that's when McCoy asked that exact question. What's going on in the Enterprise? Scotty could get worried. He could beam down a fighting force. My orders were not to attempt a rescue under any condition. How many times have Kirk has Kirk given an order not to interfere, but either A, found a way to suggest to him, to Scotty, we need help, but don't do anything, like in Bread and Circuses, which was like such a great moment, like uh, oh, yeah. Green all's well, Kirk out, and you know Scotty disrupting the power source on the planet to just let them know that hey, you know, there's a starship up here and it's pretty damn powerful. So that's actually what occurred to me, like at this moment uh, when Kirk says, my orders are to not interfere. Because if this were a live action episode, you would you would see some some more sort of uh, cutaways to the Enterprise where Scotty's yeah. trying to raise the captain, like in like Friday's Child or, you know, uh, A Taste of Armageddon, where Scotty is trying to figure out a way to mount a rescue for the landing party. But also, also, that's when it occurred to me that one of the things that could have raised the stakes, and they probably would have been able to fit this in to the animated episode if they would have, you know, maybe cut down some of the pad of time in the first act, is where's the threat to the Enterprise? Right. 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 Because whenever something happens to the landing party, it's also happening to the Enterprise. When the uh, landing party was being held hostage, you know, being forced to go into a disintegration chamber and a taste of Armageddon, they were firing on the Enterprise because the Enterprise was declared a casualty of the war between Vendikar and Amini R7. In the Apple? The, the Apple. The yeah. Well, it's also with, uh, with the return of the Archons. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Having the Enterprise under threat is exactly what needed to be done. Well, the problem is, I think part of it is they didn't really know who these snails were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you knew who Vol, what Vol was doing and why Vol was doing it. You knew why Landru was doing it. You knew the situation on uh, Taste of Armageddon. And here it's like, so the snails are kind of nice, but aren't sure if they're intelligent and just ignoring the ship that's out in space and they're super advanced. And it doesn't really... We don't know anything about that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what we do know, what we figured out is that they can plant suggestions. And so they come up with the idea, if we could get a communicator, we could get Bean back up to the ship. And so let's have, hey, here we are with someone faking being sick again. And what I went, I was like, <laughs> there is someone sick. Like, why? I mean, like, instead of faking being sick, which you've done over and over again, there's really someone who's sick in the other room. Why don't we just use them? I thought the same thing. But then I thought, okay, well, you know, Captain Kirk is the one who has to get the communicator. That's why he's probably the one who has to fake being sick. But I totally thought the same thing. So Kirk fakes being sick. They all think about a communicator and it's the kid. It's a kid snail that brings in the communicator. The moment Kirk gets it, he calls for an emergency beam out. And the moment he does that, the child snail <laughs> grabs the communicator back <laughs> next thing we know it's on the transporter pad on the enterprise at scotty's response he says what in the cosmos so this is okay so then i thought okay well now you're getting the enterprise involved you're getting scotty involved and in the end you know cut to the chase scotty does kind of save the day along with this kid but we'll get to that i mean it's <sighs> It all works in the logic that they set up, and it's all kind of dumb, you know? <laughs> because, first of all, I don't know how the snail makes it up to the bridge. It seems like he's way too big to fit in the turbo lift. We get to the bridge. We kick everyone off the bridge. 
And then Scotty's trying to talk to it. And then it takes over the Enterprise and heads out of orbit. And like, I don't understand what's going on. Um, And at the same time, back on the planet, the uh, adult snails are like, what did you do to our kid? Yeah. And they try to go into Kirk's brain and he falls down and says, they're in my head. Fight it. Fight it as hard as you can. They think too fast in too complex a manner. If he gives up for even one moment, he may go mad. Which is scary. I think this moment is pretty scary. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, Try to imagine what this would have looked like if it was a live action episode, because I love when, when Shatner acts like he's in pain. <laughs> yes. I, I certainly can picture it. It's happened many, many. And when people are getting into his head and what, I mean, all sorts of things. Yeah. Totally. He's fighting off mind control. Yeah. They've definitely full Kirk stuff. And now since one of them couldn't beat it, now we've got like five of them with all of the other uh, Federation people trying to put up a thought screen to protect him. Um, And then, Right as this looks really, really bad, Scotty beams down with the little snail kid, (laughs) and everything is okay. Scotty, what are you doing here? My young friend brought me. You made contact? It made contact with me. I I love it says, he describes it as, uh, you know, Kirk says, you know, what are you doing here? Scotty says, my young friend brought me. So here you have this conflict between the Enterprise crew and the aerial crew and the Lactrans. And Scotty beams down with the kid. Again, the fact that it was a kid that kind of saves the day with Scotty. And here you have a Saturday morning cartoon that kids are watching. And I went, wow, that was a really nice touch. And one that I don't know if if Harmon did that deliberately because it was a Saturday morning cartoon, but that it was a kid saved the day. It was awesome. So- This is one of those things where I actually really, really like the idea. And I also think it's done so fast that it, it's just like, it becomes deus es machina, which it wouldn't be like the idea is the adults are so far advanced that they can't make contact with the humans. They're too far beyond us. But the kid that isn't so advanced and thinks of Scotty as a pet and kids love pets does try to make contact it. And that's why it, it, basically, the kid snail is Kirk and Spock with the Horda and Devil in the Dark. Hey, and they're yeah. the one, the kid snail is the one that figures out, oh, these are intelligent creatures, not just animals. But it all happens off screen and it all happens instantaneously. And so it ends up, that's why I say it ends up being like Deus Ex Machina when it actually is more interesting. Like if you had had Kirk alone with the kid snail and see how he communicates his intelligence to the kid snail and see the, the realization. I mean, the the fact that it's a snail messes it up too, but see the realization of figuring out, Oh, it's human. And then can, that would have been awesome, but that's not the episode. Instead, we spent all the time in act one, as you said, kind of doing this repetitive stuff, you know? Well, also, also now it just occurred to me as you were, as you brought up the Horda that the Lactrans, yeah, they definitely are slug like snail, like creatures, aliens, uh, but they are also with the way that the that the Lactrin has this, you know, dome part of its body, it kind of looks a little like a Horta. Sure. A little. Sure, I can see that. Yeah. What else do they know about us? We are considered simplistic, but in the process of evolving into a higher order. They're right on point because what we see eventually, many years later in Star Trek, the motion picture, is that humanity 
is evolving. And in that movie, at the end of it in particular, uh, it is reaching the next stage of its evolution. I mean, that might be like a split second moment when that happens. Well, and this is a classic Star Trek theme. We've seen it with the Organians. We've heard it with the Metrons. We heard it, as you said, in Star Trek, the motion picture, we have the, the cautionary tales of return to tomorrow and the Thelogians, like this idea of humans are evolving and which way are they going to go? That's classically throughout. And it's Q, you know, it's putting the human race on trial. Like it's classic Star Trek ideas. Do we get out of here? It appears so. They do not feel we belong in their zoo. And I love Scotty's little goodbye with the snail because they become buddies. Yeah, yeah. Captain, we are a scientific contact team and we learned practically nothing. Dude, you found a whole new species. Seems like you learned a whole bunch of stuff. I have just received their final telepathic message. Which is? We'll be welcome back in 20 or 30 centuries. Our time or theirs? Theirs. And in a line that makes no sense at all, he says, And it will take me some time to figure out how long that is. And I'm like, if its century is 100 years, then you figure out how long it takes for their planet to go around the sun 100 times. I think that math would be pretty easy, Spock. Either way, Mr. Spock, it will hardly be our problem. So a few things about this. One is that uh, when they say that we'll be welcome back in 20 or 30 centuries, made me think of what the Metron says to Captain Kirk at the end of Arena, perhaps in several thousand years, your people and mine will, you know, get together and, you know, have a big party. But what also makes this classic Star Trek is that humanity is part of a of an evolutionary process where they are striving for perfection. Striving. Yeah. That is what Star Trek has always been about throughout the course of, you know, now 57 years is that it's the striving for the perfection of humanity. Well, the Lactrans, as evolved that they are, they are also clearly flawed because yeah. they got they got the Federation, the Starfleet the officers all wrong right. uh, by judging us the way we were judging them based on their appearance. So clearly they still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And I just think that ultimately when you really think about the lessons learned from the eye of the beholder, this is a quintessential classic Star Trek story that while the teleplay doesn't realize its full potential, it's still pretty good on its own terms and is very, very much in line with Star Trek, regardless of the the, the slow pacing part of the first act. Uh, it ended very strong. Well, and it did lead us to have conversations, really good conversations about what makes Great Star Trek, great, and it's and it's funny. Like, if anything, <laughs> this this is a backhanded compliment if I've ever given one. <laughs> but if anything, the animated series has crystallized in my mind by not being always so good of what made the original series so great. You know, so absolutely true. And and then there are there are episodes that, yeah, when I grade it on a curve, but even some that I don't grade it on a curve, and I just take it for what it is that hold up really, really well. And I think this this episode, The Eye of the Beholder, is kind of a mix of both because, yeah, I'm kind of grading it on a curve, but because there are things that I really, really love and cherish about it, specifically the the way that once you get past the, the insulting between Spock and McCoy, it really is what we love about Star Trek, Steve. It's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy figuring out how to mm-hmm. get 
through a problem. And I love hearing William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly provide the voices to do that. And uh, ultimately, the story is very, very much in line with what we've always loved about Star Trek's very, very best episodes. And and I got to say, it, it occurred to me when I got to the end of uh, The Eye of the Beholder, because like so many episodes of the animated series, it ends like pretty fast, like, okay, let's wrap this up. Right. And so when you're getting to this final moment with that music cue, da, 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 you know, kind of like putting the wrapping the bow around the episode. I find myself doing what I always feel when I get to the end of a live action episode of Star Trek or an animated episode of Star Trek. I I don't want it to end. And neither does my dog. <laughs> that was right on cue. Was well perfect. done, Andy. That was really perfect. So that is what we think of the Eye of the Beholder. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook page. If you're into Facebook, you can search for Enterprise Incidents, Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, we would love you to do so. You could do it at all the places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Overcast, YouTube. On YouTube, we want your comments. You can leave ratings and I think reviews as well on Spotify now. So those definitely help. If you're an Apple person, then we would love your review there. If you want to support the show, you can do it for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month on our through Spotify, which all you have to do is you look at the show notes and there's a link and you can go right there to do that. If you want to follow me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I have two recommendations. One is from the very early, early days of the cinephiles. One of our very first episodes, one I would like to redo, which is the original planet of the apes movie. But that certainly relates to, uh, to this episode. And also I'm going to once again, mention my great white shark documentary, great white shark beyond the cage of fear, which is all about, looking at this thing that we think of as an animal and then realizing that it's intelligent and the things that it is doing might not be for the reasons that we think they are. So that's Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, which is available through Amazon. Uh, Scott, how would people find you? Uh, I just want to say, if you if you and John <laughs> actually go back and redo The Planet of the Apes, the original 1968 classic, I've got to be a guest on that episode. Planet of the right. Apes is, is that movie so is one good. of my favorite movies of all time. That series, which I now include the uh, Andy Serkis uh, sure. uh, reboot trilogy, which was what absolutely magnificent. Uh, Planet of the Apes is up there with 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 Star Trek and the Beatles and Spider Man as just one of my all time passions. I love Planet of the Apes, so you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for Enterprise Incidents. If you're a longtime listener and have not yet done a review for us on Apple Podcasts, now is the perfect time because our next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are going to cover the Jihad, which is the very last episode of season one of the animated series. And if you know your animated series, then you also know that season two is only six episodes long. So we are much closer to the end of our deep dive coverage of the animated series than we were to the beginning. Boy, do I wish that Ralph Sineski directed an episode of the animated series or wrote an episode of the animated series because, man, I would love to have him back on the show. And if you have not yet done so, 
be sure to wish Ralph Sinetsky a happy 100th birthday, which he celebrated on May 1st. Ralph Sinetsky is one of our great friends and definitely one of our favorite, if not our all-time favorite guests. He joined us on all six episodes that he directed on Enterprise Incidents. But make sure you join us next time on Enterprise Incidents for the Jihad. And until then, keep going. Say it, Steve. Boldly. Yes. (laughs) 